0: Welcome back to the 220th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including a package deal that has now been split up and there's a separate proposal for Israel Aid and I want to talk about the political implications and the way that the Republicans are going to try to get it through. An interesting article about uh, grade inflation in college, it may not actually be the factors you think. And a interesting new study that may break down some of the myths or talking points about inequality, sorry, inequity in the United States. And on top of that, we'll end today with our daily delight. A story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So, is the move by Mike Johnson to split apart the border deal and Israel aid, is it actually going to be smart for him in the long run? You're going to hear my opinions on it when we go into the article, and it may be a short-term solution, may not be a long-term solution. I want to know what your guys' opinions are. you think it's smart, if you don't think it's smart, if you honestly don't care, then you can put down there, you don't care, and I'm just here for the second segment, and you can jump to about the uh, 12, 15-minute mark, and you'll probably get to that one. So, with all that said, let's jump into our first article, which comes from Fox News, with headline reading, Speaker Johnson reveals $17 billion Israel aid bill, says Senate, quote, will no longer have excuses. So if you didn't know about everything that's going on in the House and the Senate and in D.C. in general, there's a large, large battle between uh, the House, and when I say a battle, more of words than of actual process or actually doing anything at this point, which, you know, hey, if we're stalling, if we're not doing too much, if the government's not passing too many bills, you're not going to catch that much flack from me, but... The idea here was the Senate wanted to get a border deal along with different pieces of aid so that they can entice some of the Democrats who want to give this aid to Ukraine, want to give the aid to Israel, but they're not necessarily willing to take on some of the more serious border measures that Republicans would want To address. And then the House said, no, it's going to be dead on arrival. Joe Biden's out there pushing, saying we actually conceded a little bit here on this border. We think it's an important issue, but I actually need the power or at least a modern bill put into law by Congress to get certain things done. And then Republicans in the House are like, no, you already have it. There's a whole bunch of other baloney that's going along here. And there's messaging from both sides saying, you know, Biden doesn't want to address the border. And then from the Democrats saying, we conceded on some of your border issues and you still don't want to pass it. So there's lots of different framings that are going on here. Now, Mike Johnson has seen all this chaos. He's like, okay, here's what we're going to do. We know you want the Israel aid. We know you probably want the Ukraine aid. Uh, We're not probably going to give you the Ukraine aid. we still got to talk about that. Maybe we'll use that as a leverage point for the border. He's not giving up all the leverage. But he's saying, you know, The Republican side of the aisle also agrees that we need to somehow get some money to Israel. So he's putting up a standalone bill that should address the Israel aid part of it and not touching the border, not touching anything about Ukraine. And the article starts off, pretty milk toast, but I think it's a good introduction and it gives one or two quotes from Mr. Johnson. quote Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican of Louisiana is putting legislation on the House floor next week to give Israel 17.6 billion in emergency funding. The timing is notable given that the Senate and White House negotiators are expected to release legislative texts this weekend for a border security compromise in addition to President Biden's $106, 106 billion supplemental funding requests for Ukraine, Israel, and humanitarian causes and other issues. And then we jump to a quote from Mr. Johnson, quote, while the Senate appears poised to finally release the text of their supplemental package after months of behind closed doors negotiations, their leadership is aware that by failing to include the House in their negotiations, they have eliminated the ability for swift consideration of any legislation. Johnson warned, which is a, a great point on Johnson's behalf. And maybe that's because they're keeping them out of the negotiations because they're like, well, okay, you guys have a slim majority in the House anyway, so it's just going to get more contentious if we try to include you in there. Uh, but no, if you don't include them in the process, if you do not sit down with them and say, hey, this is what we're going for, is it even going to get through the House, Uh, You're kind of trying to force their hand, and Johnson's sitting there like, okay, no, if you're going to just try to force us to do something against our will, just because, yes, it may be politically expedient, maybe it will help out some of our members, maybe even Democrats can come to the table and agree with it, but if you're not even going to give us a choice and have us part of the negotiation process— then no, it's going to be dead on the rival. It's kind of like, I would say it's more of a principled stance than anything. Because I'll be honest, I think that Mike Johnson would take incremental change on the border. I think that he would love to put some Israel aid through. He's a little bit hesitant on Ukraine, and some of his further members are also hesitant on Ukraine. I think where a lot of the contention would come is from some of the members who are not okay with just more spending. They would be very very angry if any new spending that's not reappropriated. So say that they were putting money towards a new military base in uh, Guatemala, or say they were putting more money towards IRS agents like they were supposed to do with the last appropriations bill where they shifted some of that money that was going to the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service, and they were going to shift it back and give it as foreign aid to another country they would want something like that to reappropriate funds that are already going out the door rather than to add more spending more money that goes out of the door that's what I think it would probably be about you know 10 15 members would be really hawkish about it another 30 would be very concerned about it especially with the messaging that they gave in their last campaigns or the messaging that they're giving in their current campaigns, because guess what? Elections are coming up in under a year at this point. So a lot of people are going to be on the ballot. And if they want to have a strong message about Biden spending too much money, uh, putting more bills through that actually increase the amount of money going out of the, uh, well, I was going to say going out of the federal government, basically increasing spending, but also you have to take into account the money going outside of the United States altogether. And yes, there are arguments that the money goes there as aid and then they actually use it to buy some of our products and some of the things that they would need from our corporations. Sure, that's money going out the door and coming right back in, but at the end of the day, it's still increasing the deficit for the federal government. And if it was going straight back to the federal government, which then it wouldn't really be aid, it Technically just be like, hey, we're giving you money to spend so it's even when you do, which is still going to rack up the debt. But it doesn't even go back to the U.S. government directly. It goes to the corporations that work with the U.S. government, these defense contractors, military technology companies, things of that nature. So you're going to have those hawks who are going to be against any type of spending. And that's probably why the Senate and the White House aren't including them in the negotiations, because they're going to get a lot of pushback from them. But then what is Mike Johnson to do? I mean, he's leading a very thin, thin majority in the House. And if you're not going to include him, if you're not going to say, hey, you're an equal partner in this, then on principle alone, like I was mentioning earlier, he's probably just going to step back and say, whoa, okay, hey, we're out. So we've been over what the mental process would be like, what they're doing with the old aid package that the Senate and the White House have put together. Now, Mike Johnson, he's doing something a little bit more, how should I say... Uh, he is trying to outmaneuver them in that, okay, hey, we know Israel aid's really, really important to you guys, and we kind of made it a little bit weird last time. Chuck Schumer said it was actually a poison pill when they put in the provision that they would reallocate funds from the IRS. So Mike Johnson said this time, okay, hey. You didn't like that we're taking money away from the IRS. You said that was your main contention with it. You said it was a poison pill. So now we're just going to give a clean bill. We're going to say we are going to give Israel funding for X, Y, and Z for $17.8 billion. So he's taken away the poison pill, he is just putting it out there on the table, and now it's a messaging play. It's okay, hey, I I heard you last time, I'm willing to negotiate on some of these things, and I think Israel is important to my constituency too. I heard you, now I got rid of the poison pill, we're not making it a joint bill where everybody's going to have to give up something else, because most people, most Democrats, unless they're really progressive, and most Republicans, unless they're really home-focused, let's put it that way, Uh, They're not going to want to give money to Israel, but a majority of the entire House and Senate is going to be on board no matter what party they are a part of. So now Johnson's saying, okay, hey, it's in your court now. We are just giving you this outright supplemental uh, package that you can give to Israel, that we as a nation can give to Israel, and tell me what you have a problem with. And he's trying to catch him flat-footed. Well, I take that back. There's two parts to it. One, if it does get passed, then there you go. Mike Johnson gets credit for putting forth legislation that will help Israel. He can also say to Mr. McConnell, he's like, "I I gave you guys a good boost here. I was making sure that one of the key issues for a lot of Americans is addressed, and uh I was trying to get past the divide between us. I was taking it off the board for our other negotiations, so things don't have to be as complicated for that. And then the Senate also gets a win. They're saying we just passed a historic bill for Israel. So we'll see if it comes down on partisan lines or maybe even different lines. Maybe it's uh, new type Republicans versus old type Republicans who would say, okay, no, there need to be a little bit more stipulations here. So we'll see if them holding up the previous bill because of different amendments and attachments were there. Now we'll see if it's on principle that they want to hold this up and they don't want to give the Republicans a win or there's some other political calculation in there or they're going to take it and take the win and then they may have to actually give some credit to Johnson. And that's the other part of him not being a part of those negotiations. If he's not a part of those negotiations and he his hand is forced, the narrative is going to be exactly what I just said. His hand was forced rather than uh, he was an integral part and his team was an integral part actually getting this through. Mike Johnson, whether you think it's an ego play or not, he wants credit. He wants something to take back to the people that are going to vote him in. He also wants something to take back to the members of his caucus in the House. So this is his way of saying, okay, I'm going to put something forward. I'm going to put my best fit foot forward. I hope everybody can get behind this. And if you're not going to give credit on this other thing and you're going to try to end around me, then we're just going to do this and we're going to ask for a clean resolution. So I think it's a very interesting political play. It's very – it's also – it can shift the narrative. Because right now, the narrative is Republicans are the problem on D.C. They're the ones that asked for this border deal, and now that the border deal is here, uh, they're trying to not actually pass it, because there's talk about Trump wants to run on it, and there are other machinations, which we haven't even seen the bill yet. So there's lots of narratives around Republicans not doing anything. This is Mike Johnson's way of possibly changing the story for a little bit, saying, no, we actually do want to do something, especially on this Israel issue, and since this other stuff is happening, since all this other B.S. is happening, Everybody's going out there in the media and telling their side, framing it the way they want to frame it. We're just going to put a clean resolution up there to get aid to Israel so we can take that off the table, take that bullet away from them, take it out of the chamber, so then the media, the other side, even the Republicans that don't agree with him, they can say, okay, hey, you know, you don't have that armor, you don't have that weapon anymore against me, essentially. So I think it's a pretty politically savvy play on his part. Uh, Is it going to work out exactly how he wants Probably not. There's always a new way to frame things. There may be a change that Chuck Schumer wants that he's going to ask for that may seem reasonable. And Mike Johnson's like, no, okay, this is exactly how it's going to be. And then they could frame it again that Mike Johnson is being stubborn. There's, you know, in the world of politics, every opportunity is going to be taken. And yes, I am being a little bit cynical today. But, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna actually jump out of that, that headspace for a little bit because I want to jump to our second article, which in my opinion... Uh, if I was being completely cynical, I would agree with some of the arguments that the author is trying to uh, fight against, but there are some arguments that they throw up there, and even something I was thinking about myself when I was going through the article, which is a good counter-argument to some of the narrative about grade inflation, or at least a different factor of grade inflation that isn't necessarily considered as much. So, our second article comes from The New Republic, And the headline reads, I know why college grades are going up. It's definitely not wokeism. So for those who have not been paying attention to the college sphere, which is interesting because I'm I'm not actually in college anymore, but I was recently in college, so that's why I care about this, but also it produces the uh, future leaders of America, it produces the future workers of America, it produces part of the future of America, not just colleges, but... A lot of college people go on to do great, successful things, and there are other people who don't go to college who do great, successful things as well. I'm not trying to deny that. But the upper echelons are going to be more than likely college-educated, whether or not that's a good system or not. So I think it's really essential to address some of these things, and that's why I bring up college a lot. Um, This one has been very contentious when it comes to great inflation nowadays. The argument is, uh, well, professors, there's a few prongs to it. Professors want to ensure that their students are satisfied, their students complain a lot, so they boost their grades. There was a really famous, or well, i say it got attention for maybe two weeks or so. There was a, I believe he was a biochemistry teacher at a New York university, and he could be a uh, different subject matter but the point is that it was a essential class it was a prerequisite for going on the pre med track and he was a really hard grader and a lot of people knew that you weren't going to make it through his class and then one year his class complained they tried to get him kicked out i think they actually did succeed in at least uh, lowering uh, him for a little bit in the administration i think that they actually got him to stop doing classes but that's beyond the point the point is that his students wanted to not feel as though that they were being reprimanded, that they were stupid, that they couldn't succeed. So he was being pushed to change his grading criteria a little bit. And the argument he was saying is, do you want people who are going into the medical field to have lower standards and therefore not be as good at their job? That was one of his many arguments, besides the fact that We just need to have a rigorous grading system and we need to make sure that the people who actually get through these classes are doing the best they can and they are the best in the class, so on and so forth. So there's that aspect to it where students have high expectations. They think they deserve something, so they're going to push for it. There's the other aspect that the author mentions here, which is the, the woke narrative that at the end of the day, there are certain segments of the population that are underrepresented in college uh, graduation, or at least in the past, have been. They're underrepresented in certain fields, so they need to actually have a certain grading curve for certain people within the class. They need to have a at least be conscious of it when they're grading things, of whether or not somebody's in an underserved class, so then you can actually take that into account when grading. That's another argument, which I think is a little bit of a stretch, but we've seen how DEI has made it into college campuses. We've seen how some of these programs are initiated. I saw it myself on college. I'm not just saying, oh yeah, well, uh, DEI, you know, talking about the big bad monster. No, I've seen it on the campus that I went to. I saw how it was, I don't want to say pervasive, but we had a member of the staff come to one of our classes and uh, really questioned the premises of how we address uh, certain business decisions based on inequity. And I understand where she was coming from. I understand her perspective. I'm not trying to outright trash her. But my question was always to this person, uh, is it okay to sacrifice someone who is better at the job because they are a part of a group that is overrepresented or simply already represented at a normal level within the industry? Am I sacrificing something in order to get somebody who doesn't necessarily uh, fit the standard in the industry, doesn't actually be, they're not actually represented as much, but uh, they may have a little bit of lower grades, but in order to overcome some subtle inequities that you can't necessarily always see in your everyday life, you have to uh, change the parameters by which you operate. And i think that argument, it kind of falls apart when you're trying to look at whether or not someone did a good job on a test or on an assignment. Uh, I don't care what your background is. I care where you are right now. Are you passing the class? Are you doing what's needed of you? So I think a lot of teachers actually have that perspective. I don't think they're super conscious of it. And that's why I think the wokeism, like grading, Criteria is a a little sketchy, at least as an argument, but I do understand where they're coming from because I'm sure there are teachers who genuinely do think that way. I just didn't actually meet that many of them because I was in a very particular department which didn't have any of those leanings. They were pretty neutral politically. They were just trying to make sure that the students were the best that they could be and giving them the best work as professors. So... There's that and then there's this little uh, third thing which is like the coddling nature that professors actually want to ensure that students feel safe and they feel as though they're doing a good job and they're being a little bit overprotective and I think that one is uh, probably pretty genuine. Uh, not in that they're they're like, oh we need to protect these little babies but professors are people too, they have hearts and I, I feel as though a lot of the professors that I interacted with on college campus, if you came to them and complained about something, some of them, and I know one very well, and him and I had really great conversations. So he would say, get over it. You you didn't do well. You didn't do what I asked you to do. Uh, and he'll give you exact steps how to get better. He'll try to make sure that you're applying a very consistent standard. Like, whatever it is, he will always guide you. But he'll push you by being rough and tough and mean, and he's not going to be uh, overly nice. Like, oh, I can find a way to make this work for you, so on and so forth. And I, I think a lot of the professors I had had really really big hearts, and I greatly appreciated that sometimes. I will not lie. They really did help me in certain situations. I'm pretty sure there's one class that I wouldn't have gotten the grade I got unless the professor actually gave me a higher grade than I uh, deserved. I say deserved. I'm really self-critical, but even I think anybody reading the essay would say it's not necessarily worth the the grade that I had earned on another essay that was exactly the same. And she was, maybe it was something to the effect of, I tried really hard in that class, so she wanted to boost it. Maybe it was just she had a huge heart and she said, yeah, I know how Alex thinks about things. This would be devastating. There there have been situations where you can see the, I don't want to say bleeding heart, but you can see the heart of these professors. And I think that part of the argument resonates really well for me that they genuinely care for their students, and very often they don't like to see them in distress. They want to help them out. They want to prepare them or at least give them a good resume for when they go out of college. So this is why these are three factors that are analyzed as to why it's likely that well there's another one that they talk about which is like money which is if students don't get high enough grades they might go out and they might not get a good job so they can't give money back to the schools Uh, people will look at the average test scores the average scores at the college and they say well i don't want to send my kid there because they're getting uh, low b's compared to other colleges which tend to be giving out more a's maybe that's the parents would say, maybe that's because the teachers aren't as good, or maybe that's because there's great inflation. But at the end of the day, somebody's going to look at that, and say, is it a worthwhile investment for me to send my child to somewhere where they don't obviously don't have something right, or at least it's not the same as another place that's offering a lot of aids that could pr- look really good on a resume later on, uh, even though they could be more stringent and actually. Forcing the children or students to learn a little bit more, but that is besides the point. So all those points encompass this idea that hey, great great inflation. There's a lot of great inflation nowadays, and this is a genuine problem because it kind of tips the scales. If there's more A's on average than A's and not by people actually doing well and deserving A's, but simply because they're being handed out, the grading curve is getting a little bit shorter, so to speak, Uh, then companies, when they look at it, like, okay, what does an A signify? Now we got to look for our are A-pluses, because if everything's getting easier for most people, then we have to look for those A-pluses, when A's used to signify that those are your top-tier students who are trying the hardest, who are putting in the work, who have the ability to comprehend. They spend hours upon hours and are dedicated to actually doing what they have to do, a.k.a. a job, if they were to get out into the real world. And there's one other argument that I think, and the author does touch on this a little bit, which maybe people are more prepared for college. And I think there's it's a nice little synthesis for what I'm going to say here. And I think there's another alternative, not alternative, in that it replaces everything, but another factor that could be taken in, which is we're seeing uh, the amount of people attending college, uh, especially people who I would say would drop out within the first two years, because we've seen a lot of college dropout rates, for sure. We know this is been a issue. There are lots of people who go to college unprepared or just some unforeseen thing comes up and people drop out. But we've also started to see the level of people who actually attend college go down. And I would argue that it's more than likely going to be a 60, 40, if not maybe a 70, 30 split, 70 people who see other opportunities outside of college. They don't see it as necessary anymore and they wouldn't have wanted to go to college anyway. And 30% of people who are so smart, they don't see the necess- necessity in going to college. They already have their own small business by the time they're out of high school, so on and so forth. So if we're using that metric, I would say there are less people who wouldn't want to go to college, therefore wouldn't try their hardest – and therefore wouldn't actually bring down the grading scale. They wouldn't actually pull it towards the lower end as they begin to fail out. Because that's also why you start to see a higher overall average of grades as people get further into their majors. And this is a this is hypothesis. This isn't 100% proven fact. But you start to see uh, higher grades, even though the courses get harder. One, you're in your passion. But two, everybody who isn't in that passion, who isn't going to stick it out, uh, is more likely to have already dropped out the people who just want to college to go to college essentially and I think the other aspect because of that the back end is okay people that aren't prepared to go to college aren't going that also means the people that are going are more likely to be prepared to actually see it as a way forward because they maybe they feel pressured but they're willing to put in the effort nowadays because they know that there are alternative options and maybe people are just becoming more aware of how the college system works as well I think now it's it's a lot I don't want to say it's more gameable but there's definitely more information out there on how to game it so it's possible that's also part of what's going on here. Um, I know I didn't actually go into any of the quotes from the article, and if you want to read it yourself, there'll be a link in the description below the like and subscribe button, because I do think it is worth a good little read. Uh, But just keep some of those ideas in mind. Think think about the counter arguments as you go through, because the author has a very, let's be clear, they're pretty darn neutral when going through, but they definitely have a certain angle that they're coming from, and I would just be aware of that as you go in. If you hold some opposite opinions, still be open to what they're saying. Because even the the idea that it's becoming more corporatized, I didn't actually think. I was like, what? What do you mean? Uh, public universities are becoming more corporatized. And then she explained it. I was like, okay, okay. I understand the angle that they're approaching it from. So I, I definitely think it's worth a good read. So there's one more article here, which it it doesn't feel like it should take anything less than um, like 10 minutes. And I normally like to keep these to around 30 minutes. So we're going to try to just highlight some of the very, very important parts of this story. So it comes from FEE stories and the headline reads, new study calls into question the theory of rising inequality. And this is income inequality for the most part, which is what they're talking about here. And, they have. Uh, they're trying to combat one of the largest studies that talks about the increase in wealth in the one percent compared to uh, the other ninety nine percent. Or I guess. Technically, a lot of the studies actually look at the top 1% versus the bottom 50%, but there are two authors who have a contradictory view, and I, like I said, I wish I could go into a lot more detail and read every single aspect of this article. Even if I did have 10 minutes, I wouldn't be able to do that, but I do want to pull out one or two quotes from the first few paragraphs. Quote, the two authors come up with a figure that sounds far less dramatic when talking about inequality. The top 1% share of pre-tax income in the United States increased from 11.1% in 1962 to 13.8% in 2019 by 2.7 percentage points. So that's an increase of 2.7 percentage points is what they're saying over the course of 60 years, essentially. However, after taxes and transfer payments are taken into account, the increase was only 02 two percentage points from 8.6 to 8.8%. And even these figures, it is important to bear in mind that they're by no means the same people whose wealth were shared and the wealth increases over the years and decades. So what they're saying here is it doesn't just mean that, okay, Bezos was a billionaire in 1960 and he's still a billionaire today. There are new people coming in. There are new billionaires rising. There are old billionaires dying out. They're dispersing their wealth among their family members. Not all their family members are able to actually do anything with it. They just sit there and live in the lap of luxury, so on and so forth. And even with these, I already went over that, uh, only around 40% of those who are among the top earners retain their position in the following three years. This is a common mistake in the discussion surrounding inequality, where statistical categories are frequently conflated with individuals. There are several reasons, and I'm going to do a little bit more of a rant here because I do want to get this message across and... Uh, this is the kind of the explanation, the reasoning as to why some of these statistical analyses may actually be false. Looking at them in the past, quote there are several reasons why the figures from Pinkettie and Alton and Splinter, the author, sorry, the I'll rephrase that, why the figures from Pinkettie. And then, and, Alton, and Splinter, the authors of the aforementioned paper, drift apart. First, had did not take into account the impact of changes in the tax system. Before Ronald Reagan massively lowered taxes, many rich Americans preferred to retain their earnings in C-corporations instead of taking dividends. As a result, this income did not appear on their tax returns, and rich Americans appeared poorer than they were. After the tax reforms, many switched to S-corporations, corporate pass-through entities, which, where income can be directly attributed to individual shareholders and is reported directly on the high-income taxpayers' tax returns. So what they're actually saying here is that uh, the restructuring of the tax system made it so that the benefits or the profits of a company can be directly attributed to the individual in a S-corp versus in a C-corp where it was not. And the important thing here, and I think that's actually a very interesting conversation to have, which is, uh, is it going to be, are we going to crack down on corporate tax rates, individual tax rates? Before Ronald Reagan, the I think the argument would be, okay, we're going to increase corporate tax rates in order to go after these C-Corp companies where these individuals are keeping some of their holdings. And now afterwards, they switch to S-Corp because they can still attribute it to themselves individually and that actually the tax rate will be lower for these uh, people, these billionaires. So at the end of the day, I think there's an argument to be had, okay, whether we want to crack down on corporate tax rates because people are keeping their earnings in there, or if we want to tax the individual rich people a little bit more. And the point I wanted to bring up with this is that argument, whichever way it goes, The people who are extremely rich are just going to find another loophole. And that's not to say that it's okay that they can just find another loophole. But guess what? They're going to. So if I would have it my way, I would much rather have that income directly attributed to the individual rather than a corporation. Because this one keeps the individual a little bit more, how should I say... Um, it keeps them more accountable. And also because it uh, identifies this difference and it doesn't allow this conversation to be muddled any switch way in the future. I think we need to keep it consistent when we're looking at these different analyses so that we actually have a similar baseline in order to analyze things. And the reason this is important is exactly what they mentioned, which is the switching of the way that people who were wealthy held their money. It actually changes the way the the analysis, the looking at the data, it actually breaks down. So when you have things like this, when we're actually trying to track this sort of trend, if it's inconsistent and we have to take in a whole bunch of variables that are uh, separate to some degree, even though they still involve the person's person's individual wealth, uh, it makes the picture a lot more muddled. So I would rather have it stay attributed to the individual and have a conversation around that Rather than push back, make the individual tax rate higher. So then people start putting money into like C corporations. And then it kind of muddles the picture. And we think that we're dealing with this inequity when actually we're not. And these billionaires are just harboring their money in different corporations. And let's be clear I am not for more taxes in general. I, I would love, in theory alone, I would love to cut spending all the way down. Uh, yes, I know it's a lot harder. Done than actually said, and therefore cut taxes. I, I'm not against that. Uh, sorry, I'm not for raising the taxes on those people in general. But when it comes to actually looking at the data, when it comes to a completely practical point of view, whether or not my policy would be implemented, uh, forcing the hand of people and changing the statistics is going to make it harder to break down and it's going to lead to battles within the community of economics and other analysts who are looking at all of this stuff. And then it can muddy the water. And instead of actually addressing anything, instead of having a fruitful conversation about it, then we're not going to get anywhere and people are just going to be talking past one another. If we have a consistent basis and we can see that actually raising, if we leave it as it is, and we actually say, okay, you have to keep it in an S-corp, we're not saying like we mandate it, but we make it so practical that they keep it in an S-corp, and then we do marginal tax increases ever so slightly, and we see how that affects the actual income that comes into the government. Does it increase it? Does it decrease it? And... If it moves to a C-Corp, that changes the equation altogether. That changes the tax rate that they would be paying. It changes the way that we would actually be able to process the information because we would have to say, okay, so what is this individual making? But also, we can't compare it to what he was making 10 years ago because he's also keeping some of his holdings in some other corporation. It makes it much more complicated to actually do analytical breakdowns, improve any point on either side of the aisle when things, the terms of the deal essentially are considered changing. And that's not to say that things are subjective. That's not what I'm arguing here. I think we just need a baseline. And in order to have a baseline, we need to think keep things how they are now, or, or we move them back to how they were before, and then we go off of that baseline back in the day. And I think that's just going to be overly complicated. But that's way besides the point. Go read this entire article, because there are much more nuanced conversations that they have throughout This entire piece, and it's a pretty darn good one in my opinion, and I think there are certain places where you could definitely push back on what the author of the article is saying about what the authors of the study are saying. They could very well be coming from their own point of view. They could already have their own biases. They could already have their conclusions. Uh, finished in their mind, but it's at least interesting and you should definitely at least put in the time to read these sort of things that push back against uh, more mainstream narratives so you have a more holistic view of the situation. So with all that said, and I know I went a little bit longer than I said I would, let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from Parade Pets. I know we have been using them a lot recently. The headline reads, hilarious video of playful doodle letting loose in mini ball pit is a total vibe. And my favorite quote is, although he's making a mess, one little pup recently discovered the joy of the timeless treasure that is a ball pit. And as we see in the short but sweet clip, this little guy is living his best life. And trust me, yes, I I definitely agree. This ball pit, though I would not have one for my own dog because it does look hectic. This uh, doodle is absolutely enjoying his own time. And if you want to check out this video or you want to read any of today's articles, like I mentioned earlier, there's a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, as well as Podvine and the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip, where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday. So with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.